Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I would love to meet you. At some point, I'll be in the lobby after the service. Uh, but today we're talking about forgiveness. And the more that I have thought about forgiveness, the more I realize that our relationship with forgiveness is complex. Um, on the one hand, when we're guilty of something, when we've done something wrong, when we've hurt someone, we love forgiveness and we want for it to be extended freely and we want it to be extended quickly. But on the other side, when someone has wronged us or hurt us or when someone has wronged someone that we love, um, forgiveness is much more difficult to embrace. And yet forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian faith. And so today we will not answer all the questions that could be asked about forgiveness. And we likely won't answer all the questions that you may want to ask at the end of the message. But I do hope that today we begin praying that God would use his grace to train us in this area. And to do that, um, we're going to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 18. So if you have a Bible and uh, want to follow along, Matthew chapter 18 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, provided for you there in the seat. Um, you can open that up. It's on page 873. We're going to be in chapter 18. Um, in the Bible, the big numbers are called chapters and the small numbers are called verses. Um, so chapter 18, verse 21 is where we'll be. This text starts with Peter asking a very practical question. He says, then Peter approached him, that's Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And then in classic teacher pet moment, he gives a hypothetical number. He says, as many as seven times. And this is a practical question. He's asking what we should ask how many times am I expected to forgive someone? He's, he's assuming that forgiveness is expected, but how many times am I expected to forgive someone who wrongs me? Seven times? And the reason that saying seven times is kind of him being a suck up is because um, the typical teaching of Jewish rabbis during this time was that you should forgive someone three times. And so he's already doubled that and added one. And his generous spirit is on display in his question. Should we forgive seven times? Wow, seven. And Jesus answers Peter's practical question in the most impractical way possible. He says, verse 22, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Or some translations say that, 77 times. Jesus's point is not that you need to get out a calculator and a ledger sheet for all of your interactions with people and start crossing things off. And once they've reached 490 times, then they're cut off from forgiveness. There are 490 mistakes that a person is allowed, 490 sins. And at that point, they, that's not his point. By saying not seven, but 77, not seven, but seven times seven. What Jesus is saying is don't forgive seven times, forgive every time. That's what Jesus is saying. 
And because that feels impossible, and because that feels unfair, Jesus tells a story to explain why. Verse 23, he says, for this reason, do you want to know why you should be willing to forgive every time? For this reason, because the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He says, imagine that there's a kingdom and that would have been easy for them to imagine because they lived in a kingdom and there really was a king. He was called an emperor and it's maybe harder for us, but in the world of a king, the king owns everything. Everything belongs to the king. The king has absolute right to the wealth of the country. And so this kingdom has a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. Apparently this king had loaned out some money for various work to be done. Maybe he had leased some property out to some servants and he's given them plenty of time to use the investment that he was making to create more revenue. And now the king wants to check up on his money. And so he begins to settle accounts with his servants. Verse 24, when he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Now, in order to understand the story, you have to understand something about that term. A talent was a measurement of weight. And one of the ways that they would measure money in the ancient world is they would take gold or silver or whatever um, valuable metal that you had, and they would put it on a scale and weigh it. And the worth was just based on how much it weighed. And so a talent was the largest um, standard of measurement that they would use to uh, weigh something. And so this is something heavy and it's 10,000 talents. And the word 10,000 is just the biggest number that the Greeks had a term for. So this is not an exact number here. It's 10,000 talents is Jesus's way of saying it's a gazillion dollars, okay? We don't even know what that number means or how much that is. It's just big and you couldn't calculate it. And so as they were putting this money on the scale, he's just like, all right, just 10,000, all right? It's a lot, okay? And that's how much this guy owed. Now, 10,000 talents is such a big number that no one could ever pay back that much money in a lifetime. It would take some scholars say generations of lifetimes to pay back this amount of money. And that's Jesus's point. This is such a large debt. There's no way anyone could pay it back. Verse 25, since he did not have the money to pay it back. Why? Well, because it's so big. His master, the king, commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Now, by selling this servant and his family, he's not making up the difference. He's simply punishing the servant. This is a, a means of punishment. And so he decides, okay, you owe all of this. Sorry. At this, verse 26, when the servant recognized the full weight 
of his debt and of his predicament, of his debt and of the punishment, the consequence that was coming to him. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Now, is that true? Is the servant ever going to repay the king? No, the king knew that wasn't true. All the other servants who are in the room know that's not true. Even the servant knows that's not true. Why does he say it? Because he's desperate. He's come face to face with all of his irresponsibility and he can't do anything. So he just starts, uh, I'll pay you back. Please be patient with me. Please, please, please. He's just begging. Verse 27. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. Now, do you see what the king does when he looks down at this servant who is face down on the ground begging to have more time? The king in his heart, the king who is entitled to the money, the king who really has been wronged by the servant, the king had compassion. And so he released him and he gave him more time to pay it back. Is that what he said? No. The king does not honor the servant's request. He gives him something much greater. The king forgave the debt. And that was the servant's only real hope. Because even with more time, he's not paying back the debt. Literally, we'll be having this exact same moment again in a couple of years if you give me two more years. He will not pay back the debt. His only hope is grace. His only hope is that the king will have compassion on him and forgive him the loan. And Jesus says, that's what the king does. And Jesus is telling us this story because Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. God is like the king over all things. God is the one who has made the world. And God has entrusted humans, men and women, with being what we call his vice regents or his servants who rule his earth. This is Genesis chapter one, verse 26. We're to have dominion. We're to be servants underneath the king's authority. The problem is that all of us like this servant have gone our own way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray and turned from the Lord. All of us have squandered the investment that the king has given us. All of us 
have taken what God has given us and not used them for his purposes, but have used them for our own. And a day is coming when God will settle accounts. And on that day, when we stand before the king, it will be as if we owe 10,000 talents. And our only hope for that day, our only hope for that day to escape his punishment, our only hope is that he would have compassion on us, release us and forgive us the debt. And that is exactly what God has done as he has made it possible for sinners who stood neath a debt we could never afford to be forgiven. And the way that God makes it possible for sinners to be forgiven is by becoming a servant like us. He sends his son, Jesus, to live in our place to die in our place and to be raised from the dead to offer us new life. Jesus lives up to every standard that we need to meet. And then he goes to a cross and he dies. His blood is shed in order to pay the price that we owe. And then he's raised from the dead. He ascended to the father and someday he will return to judge the living and the dead. Our only hope on that day is the grace that's in Jesus. And because of Jesus, that day when it comes time to settle accounts does not have to be a day that you dread. It can be a day that you look forward to. You can actually set your hope on that day not because of how good of a servant you are, but because of how great and gracious our God is. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. So if you today are overcome with the weight of your sin, if you're a screw up and you know it, what should you do? Should you ask for more time so you can make up the debt? Or should you trust in God's grace that has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ? The grace of God says, you do not have to crucify yourself for your sin. There is one who has been crucified for you. Trust in him. Repent of your sins and trust in him. That's what you should do. Cast yourself fully on the grace of God. On the last day, the only answer that gets you out of the punishment does not start in the first person. Alistair Beck says it starts in the third person. He, he, Jesus, paid my debt. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like, but that is not the end or even the point of the parable. 
How should the servant who's been forgiven this huge gazillion dollar debt respond to other people? That's the point of the parable. Verse 28, that servant went out from the king's presence and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. So he goes out from the king's presence where he was not an equal and he finds one of his equals, a fellow servant, a peer. And this servant owed him, it says, a hundred denarii. Now, a denarius was a coin and it was a typical day's wage. And so a hundred denarii, it's hard to know exactly how much money that would be today, but there's all these currency charts that people make with ancient times and yada, yada. And general guess is this is about $30,000 today. Now, if somebody owed you 30 grand, would you be like, ah, it's all good. Most of you would be like, no, please give me, we need the money back, all right? Um, $30,000 is not like, oh my gosh, you could never pay that back, how in the world? But it's also not like, ah, you know, I'll give up a couple car washes and a couple trips to Starbucks and we're good. So this is a serious debt. So he goes out, he finds this guy who owes him a hundred and he grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. Verse 29, at this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Now, does this sound familiar? What's the difference between what this servant is doing and what the previous servant did? The difference is he actually could pay the money back eventually. And the difference is these are fellow servants. It's not the king. Verse 30. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. The servants are looking at this and they're like, Uh, weren't you just forgiven 10,000 talents and you're throwing this guy in jail over a hundred denarii? And so they go to the king and they report what happened. Verse 32, then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. The point of this parable, I think, is in verse 33. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And Jesus gives 
a strong warning to end. How are we to understand his warning? He says, so my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. I think in order to understand this warning, it's helpful to think about it with um, underneath two other theological categories. The first is um, the great commandment, the great commandment. Uh, Later in Matthew, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, but there's a second one that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in this answer, Jesus is creating a paradigm or pointing out a paradigm for how we think about our relationship with God and with everyone. And this is a paradigm that's consistent throughout scripture. The paradigm is this, that our attitude toward others does not just affect our relationship with others. It also affects our relationship with God. There's no such thing as love for God and hate for neighbor. How do you know if someone has fellowship with God, if they're close to God? One of the answers is look at how they treat people. So this warning comes, I think it's helpful to think about it in that regard. If we come to God expecting forgiveness, but we refuse to extend forgiveness to others, then maybe it's not actually God's grace and forgiveness that we've tasted in the first place. Because a right relationship with God plays out in a right relationship with others. The second category that I think it's helpful to make sense of of this verse in is our new nature that we have in Christ. Throughout this series, we've been talking about how God's grace is what saves us. But when God saves us, it's not just a transactional thing. It's not like we owe God a debt and he just cancels that as if he's removed from us the way in which God cancels our debt, the way in which we are saved is God actually connects us, unites us with Jesus so that all who are saved become new creations. This is what we talked about when we looked at Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. This was the first week of the grace series. This is on our website if you wanna go and listen to that. But the way that God saves us from our sins is disconnecting us from Adam and connecting us with Jesus. We were all created in Adam. We can be created again. We can be renewed. We can be a new creation in Christ. And the way that we enter into that life with Christ, where we become made new is through faith. It's repenting of our sins. That's changing our minds about our sins saying my way is not better than God's way after all and trusting in Jesus. When that happens, we become new creations. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So God's grace makes us new creations. It's in all of us to be unforgiving. But as new creations, we put on Christ. We imitate Christ. And so 
in light of that category of thinking about how we're united with Christ, I think we can understand this warning. Ongoing refusal to forgive is just like ongoing refusal to repent of any other sin. It proves that we've not tasted the grace of God. Recipients of grace become givers of grace. Those who receive mercy have mercy. Jesus is showing Peter and us that forgiveness is at the heart of your relationship with God and others. That's the point of the parable. This can raise a, a, a tension though for us to wrestle with. This warning of Jesus and this parable of Jesus can seem as if the obligation to forgive is an additional burden being placed on victims. So not only do I have to deal with the pain and the injustice of what was done to me, but now I'm obligated to forgive. Viewed this way, it can seem as if God is actually lacking compassion for victims and giving compassion to perpetrators. How do we wrestle with that tension? I think it's helpful to think about this story like this. Who's, who's the bad guy in this story? Bad guy. It's like a, you know. Who's the bad guy? It's the servant, right? The, the guy who is forgiven and then goes and doesn't forgive. But what if this story was just a story about one servant who owed another servant $30,000. And the servant who was owed $30,000 thought, you know what, you really need to pay that. And no, we're not gonna forgive the loan. Instead, uh, you're gonna go to prison. You're gonna pay the consequence until you can pay it back. We would all hear that story and we would be like, yeah, it makes total sense, that's fair. So why is the servant the bad guy? Jesus is helping us see that unforgiveness only is repulsive when you replay the story with a king. Forgiveness starts to make sense when you replay the story with the king. If you take the king out of the story, forgiveness makes no sense. But with the king in the story, forgiveness is the only thing that makes sense. And that's the beauty of the parable. Jesus is helping us see that forgiveness starts to make sense when we replay our stories with a king in the story. At the heart of forgiveness is not the idea of forgiveness. At the heart of forgiveness is not law. At the heart of forgiveness is not a rule that says you must forgive. At the heart of forgiveness is God made flesh, hanging on a cross, bleeding and praying for the people who nailed him there. 
That is the heart of forgiveness. At the heart of forgiveness is not a law or obligation. At the heart of forgiveness is a person. And that person is Jesus, the one who prays for the forgiveness of his crucifiers. And this means that forgiveness is actually a gift, not a burden. Forgiveness is a gift to be received first and foremost, but forgiveness is also a gift that you can give to others. And it's not just a gift to the person who's being forgiven, it's also actually a gift to the person who is forgiving. It frees you from carrying the burden of resentment and bitterness, which will eventually eat away at your soul. So what does this forgiveness look like? How are we to understand this teaching in the real world? To answer that question, I want to share briefly a story and a, a longer quote from a woman named Rachel Den Hollander. If you don't know her story, she was the first of over 150 victims of sexual abuse who came forward with accusations against Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser was the team doctor for the U.S. Olympics uh, women's gymnastics team. He served in that role for about 20 years. And during that time, he was guilty of hundreds of accounts of sexual abuse. He's currently been, prison, been sentenced to 175 years in prison. During the trial for Larry Nasser, the judge allowed for a number of women to share their stories. And Rachel Den Hollander was the last one to share. And in her statement, she addresses Larry Nasser directly. And here's what she says. In our early hearings, you, speaking to Larry, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed as of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak 
carries a final judgment where all God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. From there, she turned to the judge and she asked the judge, she, she pleaded with the judge to give the fullest judgment that she could give. Later, she was asked about her statement. And she was asked, what does it mean to you that you forgive Larry Nasser? And she said, it means that I trust in God's justice. And I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It means that I release personal vengeance against him and I trust God's justice, whether he chooses to allot that out purely eternally or both in heaven and on earth. Her story, I think, is a tremendous display of courage, but it's also a lesson for us in what forgiveness is and what it's not. So let's talk about what forgiveness is not, and then we'll talk about what forgiveness is. This list I'm tweaking from John Piper, who's quoting Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan. Forgiveness is not, first, the absence of anger at sin. If you have been wronged or you have been hurt, you are not expected to feel good about what happened to you. Anger is appropriate. Forgiveness is not, number two, the absence of consequences for sin. The Christian faith does not teach that because God forgives that there should be no earthly consequences. In fact, it teaches very clearly the opposite. One example of this is in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a letter where maybe more clearly than almost any place in scripture, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is explained. And at the end of Hebrews, the writer can still say, the Lord disciplines those he loves. This means that 
there are some sins that deserve punishment on earth in real and tangible ways. This is the situation for a pastor. The New Testament is clear that for those who serve as pastors and elders, that there are certain sins that are so offensive that the person needs to be removed from that office of pastor and elder. And in the name of grace, they should never be allowed to just continue in their position. If they're guilty of sins that are serious and damaging. Now, obviously everyone is guilty of sin, myself included. How do you know when a sin is so serious that it deserves this kind of judgment? It takes great discernment. But one of the things that Rachel Denhollander has helped me see is that churches can be dangerous places where sin is allowed to continue in the name of grace and forgiveness. And that is not what forgiveness is. So forgiveness is not the absence of consequences for sin. It's actually God's grace that trains us for good works and God's grace that brings sin to light and God's grace that gives his discipline. He disciplines those he loves. Forgiveness is not, number three, the restoration of trust. It's not It's not the same thing as the restoration of trust. If someone has wronged you, how many times are you supposed to forgive them? Seven times? No, every time. That doesn't mean that you consistently trust them in the same way that you did previously so that you continue to set them and you up to repeat the same cycle over and over and over and over again. Forgiveness is not the restoration of trust. Forgiveness is not, number four, always an instantaneous event. The reason it's important to know this is because for some reason, whenever someone is wronged, often there can be this expectation that, well, you know, because Christ forgives, you have to forgive. So, If you're still hurt by this, if you're still angry by this, what's the deal? Forgive or else you're in sin. And I just don't think that that squares with what we believe about sanctification. If forgiveness is an act of obedience to Christ, which it is, unforgiveness is a sin. That's true, which means forgiveness is an act of obedience to Christ. It's part of us becoming like Christ or it's part of us being sanctified. What do we believe about sanctification? We believe it's progressive. That is, it's 
generally like this, but there are lots of these along the way. And so an unforgiving spirit is sinful, but the expectation that a person become forgiving should not be seen any differently than the expectation that someone be patient or self-controlled. It's not always an instantaneous event. So let's talk about what forgiveness is. If it's not the absence of anger at sin, if it's not the absence of consequences for sin, if it's not the restoration of trust, if it's not always an instantaneous event, what is it? Forgiveness is resisting revenge. Forgiveness is not returning evil for evil. Forgiveness is wishing the person well. Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. Forgiveness is grieving at their calamities. It's praying for their welfare. It's seeking reconciliation so far as it depends on you, if this would be appropriate. It's coming to their aid in distress. Forgiveness is doing these things. It's canceling people's debts in these ways. Why? What is the basis for resisting revenge, for not returning evil for evil, for wishing the person well, for grieving at their calamities, for praying for their good, for seeking to be at peace with them, for coming to their aid. What is the basis for this? And it's two things. First, it's replaying your story with a king. The basis for forgiveness is that God has made it possible for sinners like us to be forgiven. And the basis for forgiveness is a deep trust that God is just. Romans 12, 19 says this, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Forgiveness is a decision that I am not the one who is ultimately responsible for holding this person responsible. God takes responsibility for that. And so Paul can say, leave room for God's wrath. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. God offers us forgiveness in his son, Jesus. And as recipients of grace, we are called to give grace. Now, to those who are here today and you have been hurt deeply, first, I just want you to hear from me that I'm sorry for the pain that you have gone through. 
It's not right. And God sees you. It is not an easy thing to wrestle with what we have talked about today. Wrestling with forgiveness for you may be the hardest thing you ever do. And that is okay. There is not an expectation that if you are going to be right with God, well, then why are you still angry? Why are you still hurt? But I also want to speak to you where the Bible speaks. And as gently and lightly as I can encourage you, I want to say to you, don't let bitterness and resentment take over your heart. Like all obedience, there is a gift for you in forgiveness. There is a freedom and there is a peace that can come by you wrestling with God to forgive the person who's hurt you. And I want to just encourage you to continue following Christ in that way. To end, I want to leave you with this verse. This is our memory verse for the week if you're following along with our memory verse guide. Ephesians 4.32. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, first, we are grateful for your grace to us. God, help us to live in freedom, knowing that Christ has set us free from our debt. God, would that bring us joy? Would that bring us life and peace? And God, would that also make us givers of grace God, I want to ask that your spirit would be active now. If there are those who are guilty today, would you help them have the grace to own up to their sin, to confess it, to repent and believe? God, if there are those who have been hurt deeply today, I ask that you would give them grace. Give them grace to wrestle with you. And God, would you help them to become givers of grace, people who forgive because they've been forgiven. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?